0: Hi, this is Steve Nerlich Why, 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 cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 101, More Stars. Well, it is an astronomy podcast, so we can't always do episodes on time machines and aliens. In this episode we're looking at some stars that are quite like our Sun and others that aren't. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Do other stars have sunspot activity cycles like the Sun does? Well, yes. Although we say star spots rather than sunspots when referring to any other star. Our Sun has an approximately 11-year solar cycle which is defined by the number of observable sunspots, which moves from a minimum number to a maximum number over a period of 11 years, and then it moves back to that minimum number again over another 11 years. Hence, some people prefer to say it's actually a 22-year cycle. Sunspots are the result of the magnetic turbulence that arises from the sun being a hugely massive rotating ball of electrically charged plasma, producing what is sometimes called the solar dynamo. It's thought that sunspots are points on the sun's surface where magnetic field lines penetrate that surface, reducing heating by convection at that spot and hence making it slightly cooler. In fact, a sunspot is still quite bright and hot, it just looks dark relative to the even brighter and hotter parts of the surface that surrounds it. So, given we do know most stars spin, and we know that main sequence stars are mostly plasma, it should be no surprise to find those stars have complex magnetic turbulence as well, and hence, should have star spots. Early discoveries of star spots were based on the fact that sunspots, on our sun, are associated with particular variations of calcium emission lines, with those same characteristic patterns being identified from spectroscopic analyses of other nearby stars. Further discoveries drew on interferometry, essentially creating a giant virtual telescope aperture by combining data from different telescopes around Earth. And then it was realized that tracking the transit of exoplanets across the faces of distant stars showed signals consistent with the exoplanet occasionally transiting dimmer spots on that star. And it was apparent those dimmer spots were moving in a way that was consistent with them being fixed spots that moved around and around on their rotating star. Anyhow, based on these various observations... It's become apparent that not only do other stars have star spots, but they also have star spot cycles. Much like the Sun, they go from a minimum number of spots, to a maximum number of spots, and then back again, although the duration of these cycles can vary. However, we should say at this point, we are finding these things on the edge of detection range of our current technology. So there is a degree of selection bias underlying the data set. Pretty much all the star spots we have detected are much bigger than the sunspots we see on our star, but it's generally assumed that there are lots of smaller star spots. Similar to the average size of our sunspots, they're just too small for us to detect them. So all of that is to preface that what we do know about star spots is based on a dataset that may not be fully representative of all star spots. Nonetheless, based on the star spots we can detect, it seems that a maximum to minimum cycle duration of around 11 years is common, although substantially longer durations have also been identified, up to 35 years in one case. There's also evidence that other stars flip their magnetic fields at their star spot maximas, which is what the Sun does, and last did in 2012 when its north pole flipped from positive to negative and its south pole did the opposite. It also seems that star spot activity is not limited to just sun-like stars. There's evidence that the closest star to the Sun, Proxima Centauri, which is a red dwarf star, has a star-spot cycle of less than four years and it's a dramatic cycle where its star spots may cover 20% of the star's surface at maxima while for the Sun it's more like 1%. So is this behaviour typical of all red dwarfs? Well, that's hard to say. Given they're quite small stars it's hard to detect star spots on any that are further away than Proxima Centauri. So yes, at least main sequence stars, do have star spot cycles. It's probably best to say that we don't have a big enough data set yet to start saying definitive things about what kinds of cycles are characteristic of what kinds of stars with respect to size, or age, or spectral class, and there are some hints that star spots and their cycles work somewhat differently in binary and other multiple star systems when compared to solitary stars like our Sun. But hopefully, more observations will shine more light on this fascinating phenomenon. Boom tish. This is the middle bit. So, nothing too surprising or startling there it's good to know that a lot of the features we are familiar with on our own star are also common to other stars. That will give us something to talk about when we meet up with some aliens. But now, let's look at some stars that aren't quite so familiar. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Why are magnetars magnetic? Keen listeners will recall that a magnetar is a type of neutron star all of which have strong magnetic fields, but magnetars have crazy strong magnetic fields, sufficient to warp the geometry of subatomic particles and polarise a vacuum, if you can believe it, not to mention understand it. Keen listeners may also recall there is a growing view that magnetars are just a phase that neutron stars go through at some point in their lives. But before we go there, Just how the heck do we know these things have magnetic fields in the first place? This, like a great many things in astronomy, is the product of supposition rather than direct measurement. One of the main forms of data we get from neutron stars and magnetars is the radiation beams that shoot out from each pole in the form of radio waves for your standard neutron stars and X or Gamma rays for your magnetars. When these polar beams cross our line of sight at Earth, we get a pulse of radiation, kind of like seeing a lighthouse from far away. Those pulses tell us how fast the objects are spinning, which for standard neutron stars is pretty fast, and for magnetars is crazy fast. And so, QED, since those beams are electromagnetic radiation, An electromagnetic source seems clearly involved and we know that when you spin something that has an electric charge, you generate a magnetic field. Hence our conclusion that neutron stars have magnetic fields and magnetars have crazy powerful magnetic fields. Then, as patronising science communicators like to say, Now you're probably wondering where all the charge comes from since neutron stars are made of neutrons, right? It's apparent that neutron stars do still retain some charged particles in addition to all the neutrons that give them their name. The origin of these charged particles isn't altogether clear. Remember the neutron star itself is the remnant core of a star that went supernova where a core collapse had crunched protons and electrons together into a dense ball of neutrons, much smaller than the original star's core, but also much denser. So it may be that a few protons got missed by that big crunch, or perhaps they were later drawn down to the neutron star's surface from surrounding plasma. The tremendous density of a neutron star means that gravity at its surface is also pretty tremendous, so anything approaching its surface will be trapped and held by it. Anyhow, however they got there, neutron stars clearly do have some charged particles, probably more in the star's outer crust, and when the star spins, those charged particles generate a magnetic field. It's thought that the field then drives the motion of those charged particles, channeling them towards the poles, so they're driven into close proximity to each other, creating heat as well as radiating light. At least we think that's roughly how it works, maybe. We are mostly guessing at the possible mechanisms based on the data we get, rather than making any direct observations of those mechanisms themselves. Another bit of data which supports this whole hypothetical framework is that neutron stars' rapid spin rates are slowing. Not by much, but in a measurable and very steady way. Given these stars are just spinning in a vacuum, it's hard to explain why their spin rate slows like this unless, of course, you invoke a magnetic field which essentially applies a break to the star's spin through the drag that's generated between the star itself and those surrounding charged particle interactions. Meaning that the star's angular momentum energy is being converted into heat and those polar radiation beams. So let's now take all this thinking back to the context of magnetars. Rather than their polar beams being radio waves, they're beaming out gamma and X-rays. So that implies a much more powerful magnetic field must be at work, which creates more heat and more intense radiation beams. And while magnetars spin really fast, their spin down rate is also quite fast, which is why the average life of a magnetar is only around 10,000 years. So again, this is consistent with our hypothetical framework. With a higher energy beam suggests a more powerful magnetic field is at work, and the faster spin down rate supports the idea that that more powerful magnetic field is exerting more braking on the magnetar's spin. Of course, this all remains a heated and highly charged debate, but this is, more or less, the current state of thought. This is the end bit. So, there you go. Neutron stars might be cheap, but they're not free of charge. And so when they spin around, they do have a certain magnetic attraction, even if it's only fleeting. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to conserve your angular momentum, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll acknowledge the gravity of the situation. Thanks for listening. Steve Nellick, Cheap Astronomy.